You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. They're out there, you know. They live in the shadows, in handwritten pamphlets, in dark corners of the internet. They have knowledge that's been hidden from everyone. They know exactly how the world works, and what they know can be boiled down to this. Nothing... But nothing is random. Everything that happens, every law that's passed, every cultural trend, every school shooting, every natural disaster, is part of a grand design, but you can't see it. The designers are invisible, but they rule the world from behind the scenes. Sure, you laugh it off when the theories get really wacky. You know it's easy to put together a bulletproof story when you get to make all of it up. But still... Strange things are happening in the world all the time, and there are smart people who think that many of those mysterious events are connected. And if you follow the trail these researchers provide, if you read their books and watch their videos, they say they can prove that everything you know about the world around you is wrong. But, more importantly, the reason you don't see the reality that their research has uncovered is because the conspiracy has already gotten to you. The they behind the scenes don't want you to know. They don't want you to see the world behind the world. Because if you did, then maybe you would take control, real control, of your life and start working against their plans. Now, you're not jumping on the bandwagon. But you also suspect that the very important people you see behind government podiums and news desks don't have all the answers either. So you're skeptical, but interested. And maybe sometimes, in the middle of the night, as you're trying to go to sleep, you might wonder to yourself... What if those other guys are right? What if the world really is run by one big series of interlocking conspiracies? Well, I don't have all the answers. Far from it. And I don't claim to know much for certain. But I am certain of this. The world is not simple. The easy explanations are often way off the mark. And the very important people who set the agenda and limb our discourse are often both completely confident and utterly wrong. But before you give up, and throw in your lot with the conspiracy theorists who promise to reveal the real world of secrets, power, and deceit that rules the Earth? Remember this. Those people aren't just wrong. They're fucking nuts. Welcome to the Paranoid Strain. risk of repeating myself, welcome to the Paranoid Strain. This little venture is the result of my lifelong fascination with why people believe really weird things, how they keep on believing even when their ideas are disproved, and how they eventually start believing every crazy idea that hoves into their field of view. Finally, in some cases, those weird beliefs can reach critical mass among a whole group of people and even impact the real world. 
You know, where you and I live. In other words, it's a practical guide for those who are fascinated by conspiracy theorists. Now that ists is important. We're going to talk endlessly about conspiracy theories, but I got hooked on this topic because I'm just gobsmacked at the way some people can calmly, clearly state and defend perspectives that are obviously insane. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit. It's a James Joyce reference. And yes, I'm more pleased about that fact than is probably appropriate. I know some internet troll on a mission will figure out my not-so-super-secret identity eventually, but I've always wanted to nom de plume, and since we're going to spend our time talking about secrets, occult knowledge, Gnostic teachings, and legendary cults, I like the idea of surrounding myself in an easily pierced veil of anonymity. Anyway, I have an unhealthy interest in why people believe incredibly strange things. Hopefully, you do too. Regardless, in this first episode, I'm going to do my best to convince you that learning about this stuff is worth your time and, obviously, mine. We'll start by discussing the history of conspiracy thinking, including our very own pet theories on where these ideas come from, then jump into the ways conspiracies have warped people's perceptions of major world events, including the signing of our Constitution. Next, we'll chat with our interviewee, a longtime journalist who's covered both sides of the pond. We'll head from there into our letter section, a further meditation on the traits conspiracists tend to share, and finally, our Profiles in Crazy segment, where we'll tell you more about somebody whose life's work made the world just a little more surreal. With the introductions out of the way, I invite you to stick around and see just how weird things can get. Before we get started, we do have to discuss what this podcast is not about. We're not going after mainstream beliefs. I'm sorry, that's just how it is. I guarantee that every one of you has plenty of ideas that other sensible people think are weird. Your religion or political party or just your opinion on how many cats is too many. The answer to that last one is four. More controversially, we're not going after a number of issues that pit demonstrable reality against firmly held beliefs. I'm looking at you, climate change deniers and you, anti-GMO activists. In both of these, and many other cases, there are a small number of actual experts who would argue the counterpoint. So, for the record, humans are causing climate change, and there's no evidence that GMOs are bad for you. But that's the last you're going to hear on these topics. So, that's what this podcast is not about. If you believe liberals are moonbats, or conservatives are wingnuts, or people who eat mayonnaise and french fries are Nazis, you'll find the internet is filled with oodles of material created by like-thinking individuals. Go forth, subscribe elsewhere, and have your opinions reinforced. Now, with both extremes of the political spectrum mad at me, I can move on. Instead, this podcast is aimed at anyone who's ever been chatting up someone attractive at a bar only to hear something like, Of course you know, I never trusted anything the government says since it's been taken over by the Zionist occupation. I'd put one of those record scratch sound effects in here, but we're better than that, aren't we? Anyway, this is the point where you realize that your plans for this person have shifted from Hey, baby. to Come on over! We're here to help you understand both where those ideas come from and how otherwise sensible people come to embrace them. So, I can't be the only person this happens to, right? 
Just a few months ago, I found myself hanging out by a pool, having a nice conversation that suddenly veered into Weirdsville, because one of my companions revealed that she, like far too many of our fellow Americans, did not believe that 9-11 was perpetrated by the 19 hijackers and their support network. I was flustered for a moment. I admit, though, that in the months leading up to this project, I've come to treasure these conversations as good podcast fodder. I began to... I thought... Calmly and rationally explain to her why I believed that her views were... I'm having trouble finding the right word. Dumb. My explanation didn't have the desired effect. Instead, she got more agitated, felt backed into a rhetorical corner, and eventually snarled, Next you're going to tell me you believe we really went to the moon. Well, yeah. But just like the six times that we actually did, her attitude, previously hostile, became... I don't know, rapid? A friend with a better handle on good party etiquette and less rhetorical skin in the conspiracy game, changed the subject before things could get any worse. But it's not just light party banter with the fetching, inebriated, and diluted you have to be on the lookout for. These days, even sensible-seeming books, websites, or other sources can suddenly take a sharp turn into territory that's both batshit crazy insane and expansive, well-documented, and supported by a variety of other like-minded researchers. Anyway, I run into this kind of thing a lot. And I'm not talking about the folks who harbor some sense that we still don't know everything about the assassination of Kennedy. We don't. Or even those who suspect there may have been another shooter. There wasn't. Instead, we're trying to understand why so many folks out there believe there's unassailable proof that Kennedy was killed to cover up the truth about UFOs. I'm assuming that some of you think that I made that idea up, so please, pause this and just Google the words JFK assassination aliens. I'll wait. Either you just checked, or you're lazy enough to take me at my word. But either way, let's agree that a whole lot of people out there believe some truly wacky shit. So Paranoid Strain will investigate theories that aren't based on evidence, but instead on the strong conviction that however the world appears to be, it must be something else. Claims that say the world you see in front of you every day is a lie, that you should ignore that reality in favor of occult epistemologies that just feel right. And perhaps more importantly, that only those who hold the believer's worldview can see things as they truly are. This is the idea that unifies those who believe that taxes are a giant conspiracy that no one actually has to pay, and those who believe that Earth is headed for a cataclysm caused by an unseen tenth planet. Fine. Ninth planet, Dr. Tyson. That 9-11 was an inside job, and that evolution is faked by a global cabal of scientists in the grip of Satan. This is how you build a worldview that creates its own evidence, and why those who believe are so amazed that nobody accepts their evidence except others who have taken the plunge. This is how you rise above the sheeple. This, my friends, is how you truly, sometimes fatally, drink the Kool-Aid. By the way, we'll get to Jonestown, too. The Copernican Principle is the hard-won realization that Earth does not have the privileged position in the universe that we humans had once assumed. And it's a great thing to keep in mind, especially when you're considering how you personally evaluate things that happen in your youth or your middle age, etc. Humanity as a whole wants to think that we, and our planet, are absolutely central to the story of the universe. In the same way we as individuals like to think that the world we came into as young adults was the most perfect version of culture that ever happened, and that everything since is a pale imitation. Thinking this way makes us seem more important, and our generation's time in the sun seem more significant, then they might appear to less biased observers. Given that I'm naturally a kind of confident... Egotistical? ...guy, 
I found it useful to keep this idea in mind at all times when I'm tempted to make bold pronouncements. Take, for example, the age-old whinge. Why are kids or music or movies or politics or anything else so horrible these days? By reading the Copernican principle and applying it here, we can see that the most likely answer is... They're not. On balance, they're basically the same as they were when you were younger. But since your frame of reference was set during your youth, you'll tend to notice the worse aspects and overlook the better. And of course, you'll tend to remember the culture of your youth with rose-tinted glasses. This is a widely known failing of the middle-aged and older, and since joining that club, I've really tried to keep it in mind. Now, that was kind of a long way to go to introduce a concept that I'm promptly going to ignore in the next sentence. But, granting the Copernican principle, doesn't it still seem like maybe the average person these days is more skeptical about a greater number of topics than might have been true in, say, the 1950s or the early 1960s? Specifically, I'm suggesting that more people in today's culture disbelieve even conclusive answers delivered by credible experts on everything from economics to vaccinations. Sure, given everything from the Gulf of Tonkin to the recent Volkswagen Dieselgate, they have plenty of good reason to doubt, but there's a big difference between healthy skepticism of the official story, which has been used to uncover everything from the Catholic abuse scandal to Iran-Contra to football's concussion crisis, and then just assuming that everything is a conspiracy or cover-up, even when there's absolutely no good evidence, like the idea of a fake moon landing. The latter isn't really skepticism. It's just reflexively rejecting a clear logical answer, as if the answer is unbelievable simply because it's endorsed by experts or because it's simple and clear. Again, I acknowledge that this shift, this increase in unwarranted skepticism, would be hard to prove, and maybe you're not with me, but I'm still going to attempt an explanation. I think this tendency is a modern mutation of a much older way of seeing the world. The average person in pre-scientific times did, after all, firmly believe that unseen forces were behind everything, and that many random chance events were caused by mysterious shadowy figures. It's just that in those days, unseen forces and shadowy figures meant the supernatural. Nearly everyone believed in a large and varied spirit world that regularly interacted with everyday human life. Whether the cause was deities or demons or ghosts or leprechauns, anything inexplicable or mystifying or simply odd was in a sense explicable, clear, and banal. The spirits did it, or the gods, or pixies. And for literally thousands of years of our history, that answer was good enough. Then... Science comes along and throws everything into a kerfuffle. Suddenly, we could explain the diversity of life and accurately predict the periods of comets. Scientific reality began pushing the supernatural to the periphery. But then something weird happened. Some people uncomfortable with the various aspects of the new modern world that science had helped to create began using the tools, skepticism and imaginative leaps, of science to question even well-supported scientific conclusions. These people's creeping sense of dislocation and dread began to metastasize into a web of complex, paranoid conspiracy theories. On the other hand, he could be full of shit. Okay, yes, that is a possibility. But it's also kind of mean. Ouch. Anyway, we'll tackle questions like these with some regularity, and we'll approach them from a variety of viewpoints in future episodes. But for now, let's try to figure out what has historically made these beliefs so compelling to so many of our friends and neighbors.
Because I'm an American, my study of this subject has focused on the conspiracies that afflict my countrymen and women. But, let's face it, mostly men. So for the most part, American craziness will tend to dominate this and future episodes. But it is worth briefly noting that perhaps the single most important event in creating the modern conspiracy theorist mindset was the French Revolution. In his marvelous book, Conspiracy, historian Daniel Pipes notes that event had a profound role in the development of conspiracism. But that, ironically, conspiracism acquired currency as a political idea just as it became less plausible as an effective policy tool. Prior to the French Revolution, when small numbers of individuals dominated society, Plots were not difficult to execute, but ideology and mass participation made them far less likely, and the onset of market forces further reduced their potential. In this way, the French Revolution had the curious effect of undermining the suppositions behind conspiracism, even as it turned conspiracism into a political force. In other words, when kings and their courts controlled the levers of power, conspiracies and intrigues could truly change the world. But the revolution started spreading that power to more people and new institutions from political parties to government bureaucracy. With power diffused in this way, conspiracies couldn't be as effective as they had once been. Of course, for all of its high ideals, the revolution almost immediately turned paranoid itself, seeing hidden plots and counter-revolutionaries everywhere, the same sort of things the king and his court had previously obsessed over. And so, in the most literal sense, heads started to roll. In any case, the conspiracy-minded thinking that afflicted the French in the revolutionary period was matched by similar suspicions across the pond. Jesse Walker, in his book The United States of Paranoia, briefly sketches the way that the early days looked from the point of view of the Anti-Federalists, one of the two key political constituencies of the newly minted United States. These were basically the guys who carried a torch for Thomas Jefferson, and not coincidentally, were considered the losers coming out of the Constitutional Convention. Quote, After the Americans defeated the puppet masters in London, they had to contend with the like-minded marionetteers at home. A cabal of nationalists were dissatisfied with the young country's constitution, called the Articles of Confederation, with its limits on the central government's powers. They wanted to bring the country under more centralized control, replicating the old order in the now independent United States. Then, in 1787, they persuaded 12 of the 13 states to hold a constitutional convention. In theory, the conclave was merely going to propose some revisions to the articles. Behind closed doors, the delegates ignored their assignment and instead set to work, replacing the articles with an entirely new constitution, one that would concentrate far more power in the national government. Running roughshod over normal legal procedures, the conspirators rammed through the constitution in what amounted to an illegal coup d'etat. Okay, so remember, that monstrous betrayal we just heard about, that conspiracy of lies... That's the way that maybe half of the political class of the new United States viewed the creation of the frigging Constitution. You know, with a capital C, the symbol of America that modern conspiracists think we need to get back to, the thing they believe their enemies are out to destroy. Obviously, conspiracist thinking has been with us since the beginning, but it was only in the early 1960s that the flavor of crazy that currently afflicts us began to emerge fully formed. And the canary, who warned us all about the effluent in this particular coal mine, was Professor Richard Hofstadter. By mid-century, one-time fringe beliefs and conspiratorial thinking were roiling up from the depths of the American psyche and threatening to undo what at that time was considered the broad, liberal consensus of the country. From the John Birch Society to the McCarthy hearings, the consensus began to unravel, breeding distrust of the government and even one's fellow citizens. By the late 60s, the hippies and other radicals were fomenting conspiracies from the left, delivering wild theories about each of the decade's lone gunman assassinations, building insular and suspicious cults, and generally acting exactly the way you'd expect a bunch of idealistic young people to do 
after engaging in a decade-long drug binge. Hofstadter, one of America's foremost political scientists and historians, in early 1964 published a forward-thinking and influential essay called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. That title might sound familiar. In any case, Hofstadter does a brilliant job of examining the paranoiac origins of the country to help his concerned contemporaries see where the latest craziness was coming from. Beginning with the colonial period's frets about Masons and taking into account the 19th century's rampant anti-Catholicism, he demonstrates that Americans have a long, glorious history of fearing the hell out of their fellow citizens. But while earlier movements focused on enemies who were supposedly anti-American, like those villainous Masons and Catholics, Hofstadter identified an important post-war difference. Quote, The spokesmen of those earlier movements felt that they stood for causes and personal types that were still in possession of their country, that they were fending off threats to a still-established way of life. But the modern right wing feels dispossessed. America has largely been taken away from them and their kind, though they are determined to try to repossess it and to prevent the final destructive act of subversion. The old American virtues have already been eaten away by cosmopolitans and intellectuals. The old competitive capitalism has been gradually undermined by socialistic and communistic schemers. The old national security and independence have been destroyed by treasonous plots. Their predecessors had discovered conspiracies. The modern radical right finds conspiracy to be betrayal from on high. You can expect to hear a lot more from that guy's essay in the coming months. And in fact, a little later on in this show. Regardless... That's what makes so much of what we'll cover in this series so compelling, so funny, and often so sad. Many of the most ardent modern believers in conspiracy theories are in fact the disenfranchised. And when they misdirect their anger and doubt into fruitless, mind-bending, paranoid ranting, they waste time they could spend working to redress the actual grievances that affect them and their families. While Hofstadter is focused specifically on the right-wing's birchers and other reactionaries, The modern paranoia is not limited by a place on the political spectrum. Hofstadter was undoubtedly a man of the center-left, so I'll leave it to Philip Jenkins, writing in The American Conservative, to highlight similar tendencies that the left evinced recently, especially during the George W. Bush presidential administration. Quote, We find persistent claims about administration and CIA control of cocaine trafficking designed to undermine urban black political power, and then the 9-11 truther movement. Under George W. Bush, recurrent shrieks warned that the nation stood on the verge of a theocratic takeover by ruthless fundamentalists and presumably funded by the Koch brothers and Halliburton Corporation and armed by Blackwater. And really, he's right. Every major convulsive event these days is immediately declared a false flag operation by someone on the paranoid fringe, or it's linked to other seemingly unconnected events as part of an ever-expanding indictment of the mainstream understanding of the world. Radicals are as susceptible to these ideas as reactionaries. In fact, they're increasingly hard to tell apart when it comes to pure paranoia. In the end, then, this is not truly a partisan malaise. It afflicts thinking on both sides of the political spectrum. Though, to be fair, much of the most prominent, mm, really delicious crazy in recent years has come from the fringes of the right. But my conservative friends, should we find ourselves in an extended period in the fever swamps of militia and other fundamentally right-wing movements, please be patient. I guarantee we will soon be back to bashing left-wing crazies as well. So, in the coming months and years, we will endeavor to sound the depths of all major rivers and the smaller tributaries of conspiracy thinking that you might encounter in your personal life, or at the workplace, or God help us, on the internet. We'll tackle a number of quite serious topics, but we're going to get to some really silly stuff as well. 
I encourage listeners to write in with questions and suggestions for other topics, as well as corrections and clarifications. And we encourage you to record yourself reading your clips as audio so that we can include you directly on the podcast. Please send these emails and audio clips, along with the pseudonym that you'd like me to use for you on the air, to theparanoidstrainnospaces at gmail.com. In addition to my ramblings, we will also feature a regular segment where I discuss the current topic with someone with experience or expertise in the relevant area. So without further ado, let's move on to the Paranoid Strain's first ever dialogue, featuring me and my longtime journalist friend, Lane Green. He's worked for The Economist for more than 15 years, and in the spirit of pseudonymousness that I have so recently introduced for this podcast, will hitherto be known as LG Sweet. LG, thanks for being here. Sweet. Nice to talk to you. So I'm assuming that you have read through and brushed up on the Hofstadter essay? Indeed. And this wasn't your first time having read this, I assume? No, we actually had this one assigned in AP U.S. History in high school, I remember, and it was a, a, a pretty high-level stuff at that time because you were talking about – it's essentially meta-thinking. It's how, we th- how we've thought about thinking. It's the first time we read historiography, a historian writing about how people talked and thought about things at the time as opposed to the things that were actually happening. It's the kind of thing that you get to in upper-level classes in college and graduate school, but it was, it was a nice teaser of it in high school. Does this seem like a trenchant diagnosis of a certain way of thinking, or does it seem overblown? You know, do, do you have any feelings on it, and do they differ from when you were 17? Is it trenchant? Yes, I think it's very trenchant. I mean, I think, yeah, he identified something that we can read, you and I, 53 years later, or however many years it is exactly, and, and, and see a very, close, uh, a very close analysis of exactly what we're seeing now in America. And so uh, he nailed something on the head. I see he meant to nail a, a long-term trend that preexisted the Republic that went through uh, the early Republic, the, the middle years, the, the, the peak of immigration around the turn of the last century and all the way up to, you know, Eisenhower, obviously a communist agent. So with, with, the, with the look back, it's both a little depressing that it's been like this for so long and a little bit weirdly reassuring that apparently nothing is new under the sun. And I can alternate between feeling better about the fact that we've always been this way and kind of in disbelief that we've always been this way. So I did want to ask you, as a reporter, have you ever run into this sort of paranoia? Like, has, has this actually happened to you? Uh, about the only time that I ever really did was when I covered the 2008 election. And I went to Minnesota for the Republican convention that year. It was in St. Paul. And it was the, it was the libertarian wing of the, of the party, the, the party that gravitated to, to Ron Paul. Um, and this attracted people like Jesse Ventura, whom I had a fun little chat with in a hallway. And he turned out to get a little weird after his period of uh, being a pretty OK governor in Minnesota. Jesse Ventura um, is one of my favorite paranoiacs, actually. And he wasn't at that time, so something made him get more paranoid. That might be one for a later episode, but what's make, what makes people go from just a little unorthodox to full-on paranoid? Anyway, I chatted with Jesse, and I chatted with some of these other folks, and I had a short one with Ron Paul. And then I was, uh, I was just at, a, at an event, a Ron Paul event outside, when I was, uh, I was told that the Council on Foreign Relations uh, was one of the tools of the conspiracy, obviously. And I'd just become a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. So I thought, well, hot dog, this means I'm about to, uh, I'm about to be able to, uh, to, to be initiated in the conspiracy. As it happens, I was only a, 
what we call a term member, a five-year sort of junior member. And so uh, I wasn't quite in full. Uh, I wasn't quite in full conspiracy mode yet. They still haven't told me their their innermost secrets. I hope maybe if I if I get a full membership one day, I'll I'll, I'll get the, I'll get the real. So stuff. they didn't start the process of turning you into a reptilian alien or anything. No, not yet. The role of the press really is interesting because there's a there's a closed loop of thinking. That means that if I'm not reading what I think to be true in the press, then clearly the press are in on it too. They've been bought or silenced or whatever. The key concept is the lack of falsifiability. Nothing would prove them wrong because it's an article of faith. Anything that doesn't confirm must have been co-opted by the conspiracy. And so that's what that's what makes it closed. That's what makes it impossible to talk to some people. Do you feel like there are any other differences to the style or type of paranoia you run into in Europe as opposed to the U.S.? Yeah, that's one of the questions I had after reading the Hofstadter essay because he didn't really even bother getting comparative with it. And I'm a, I'm a comparative government guy. I, I did European and American politics. So when I don't see comparisons happening and people talk about America as if it dropped down out of the sky, um, I always get a little frustrated by that. Um, it does seem a bigger feature of American discourse, but it, it rides on uh, tendencies that are probably universal in the human mind to see sort of hidden agents where they're not there. Uh, something that people like Michael Shermer have written about really well for the popular audience and people uh, have written all lots of psychological articles about. So it's, you know, this clearly rides on universal beliefs. So what, what is American about it? Well, it just, it just seems to have more uh, deeper roots in America. And you could hypothesize about why it could be it's uh, a bigger country where more people are far away from uh, the centers of power in New York and Washington. And uh, therefore, you know, they're just a little less sort of civilized by proximity to the circles of power they they ascribe these magical powers to. Uh, spending some time in Washington would disabuse you of the notion that a conspiracy was possible pretty quick. If you live a thousand, two thousand miles away from Washington, you might be able to describe practically magical powers to these people that you know to be fallible human beings if you've ever worked inside the Bible. I did uh, send you a link to an article that I thought was really interesting. I'm just going to read a little excerpt that was quoted on Vox. You know, he's a Republican. He's on the House Committee on Intelligence, so he gets a lot of mail from his constituents regardless. Um, But, and I'm quoting... Uh, The biggest change he's seen since he arrived in Congress in 2002 is the rise of online media outlets and for-profit groups that spread what he views as bad, sometimes false information, which House members then feel obliged to address. Then uh, quoting him directly, I used to spend 90% of my constituent response time on people who call, email, or send a letter such as, I really like this Bell HR 123, and they really believe in it because they heard about it through one of the groups that they belong to. 10% were about chemtrails from airplanes or poisoning me or every other conspiracy theory that's out there, and that is essentially flipped on its head. The overwhelming majority of his constituent mail is now about the far out ideas, and he thinks that it's because of this sort of partisan media environment. And obviously this affects uh, both sides of the spectrum. So I'm just wondering, um, is there an equivalent of the sort of grassroots publications that go for the crazier aspects of partisan thinking or like veer into the conspiracy theorists that bubble up into the mainstream in Europe? Well, there are definitely conspiracy theorists in Europe. I, I know, of uh, you know, a French 9-11 truth or conspiracy theorist, but uh, it just doesn't have any space in the public imagination. Reporters don't report on crazy uh, uh, conspiracies. Something like the birther controversy, which was just totally f- f- ridiculous from day one, has nonetheless, you know, just t- eaten up. I don't know how many hours of print reporter and uh, and other kind of reporters' time and broadcast and so forth in the states, and it just has no it has no space in the public arena here. Um, 
if somebody had a weird theory about David Cameron's origins, it would only be publicized to mock it. It wouldn't it wouldn't get a reporter to say, well, on the one hand, we talked to this crazy. And on the other hand, we talked to somebody responsible. And that American reporter's bad habit of assuming that the truth is somewhere more or less halfway in between the two poles. Um, so uh, it's just it's just it's just not a feature here. In fact, Europeans are fairly obsessed by uh, by Americans' habit of doing this. But is that something that they just teach in American journalism schools, or is it just a, a matter, an article of faith at the editorial level, or what? What causes things like this to actually get a hearing? Is it just eyeballs? I mean, is it just a cynical sort of grab for readership? Uh, I think it's more the tradition of European journalism being one of crusading rather than being one of uh, you know just the facts, ma'am. Uh, get this side, get the other side. Um, if you think 100 years ago you had Zola and the Dreyfus Affair, sort of j'accuse on page one, that's that gives you a flavor of how Europeans think the press can and even should be used. Um, the press in Britain is incredibly partisan, as you mentioned just a minute ago. Most people know that, you know, you could take a France, you take a Germany, every paper is more or less well known for its, for its political line. Um, and you have a few sort of basic arbiters of the middle, but even they are suspected of having a line. So, you know, the BBC is a little bit to the soft left, for example. Um, but I just there's there's less uh, there's just less crazy in the papers, and I, there's somewhere in the loop of what readers demand and what journalists give them. I suspect that it's more from the demand in the states that, that ordinary people are just that extra little bit willingness to believe some of this crazy stuff. Uh, and it just either it doesn't get doesn't get demanded or it just doesn't get covered seriously. So you see pockets of it, and certainly countries like Hungary have gone a very populist route recently. And um, so it's not completely absent from Europe. So I don't want to do some sort of Europe is great, America is is, is a Neanderthal kind of thing. I, certainly, there's there's elements of it here. Yeah. So uh, how do you sniff out bullshit in your career as a reporter? Like, obviously, that's a, a very important part of the job. What do you do? Like, what are some sort of go-to ideas for making sure that the things that you're going to be reporting on or the ideas that are being conveyed to you are genuine? There are two basic gates that cut probably about 98% of potential fakery uh, uh, down at the first couple of hurdles. One is that you look at self-interest. If somebody's telling you something that they're obviously very interested in having you believe because they own a company or because they work for someone who does, your skeptical, you know, gate should go up very high, obviously, at that point. And you just approach them in a sort of slightly adversarial, which is not to say hostile, but adversarial way. So you don't you don't take anything they say um, as gospel first. And second, it's just obvious, the, the plausibility bullshit detector that you would use if anybody told you any amazing story. I've been contacted by people just randomly writing me online and saying, I boy, do I have a story for you. And usually my my response is like, why me? I can, and it usually becomes obvious pretty quickly that they have tried hundreds of reporters and I'm just they're just working their way down a long list once they've once they've gotten to me because uh, you might think people think oh if I get at this an economist then it'll really get believed and so that's that it does attract a few crazies and every once in a while I spend some time investigating some of these and it's just I always regret having done so because I always just end up going exactly where I started which is this sounded like bullshit when I started but the person just just sounds sane enough and they seem to have just enough command of detail that I. Then spend a couple of afternoons you know, reading their emails and the stuff they send me. And finally, I end up wishing I, I hadn't, and then I have to cut them off. And then, so I think I'm probably nicer than most reporters in entertaining some of this stuff uh, because you never know. You never know where the big whistleblower scoop is going to land in your lap and get you that pillowed surprise. If you just said no to everything that sounded implausible, you'd have, uh, you'd have missed some great stories. But so far, the great scoop has never just come and landed in my lap. 
I got past a grubby printout of an email about a guy's theory of uh, of the Lindenberg baby kidnapping. It literally was a printout of a hotmail. That is a breaking exclusive. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Recently, as my New Year's resolution, I just tacked up a little uh, a little post-it note that just said no is an okay answer. What topics do you want to hear us tackle? Well, um, the financial ones are interesting. I'm, I'm interested in why are people so interested in thinking bankers, Jews, whoever, financial elites are behind conspiracies. Because they, they don't understand the value of banking. What do bankers do? They just seem to sit on your money as the ultimate middleman. And so they're a great empty, uh, empty vessel for the, for the pouring of a lot of, uh, a lot of weirdness because people don't understand what, where bankers do add value. And, and so um, I'd like to see you engage some of the, some of the more articulate uh, proponents of some of the somewhat more plausible theories like you know banking, modern fiat money is just a – is a conspiracy and we should we should go back to the gold standard because it can't be faked kind of folks. You might actually, you know, find yourself in an interesting discussion. I'd like to see where it lands. Okay, so that's about it. Thank you very much for joining us, LG Sweet, also known as Lane Green. All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. My baby left me She got so annoyed She took the midnight train And the pain I went inside my uncle Floyd He told me that the government Has got to be destroyed Paranoid, 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 paranoid Given that this is our inaugural episode, and that I still want to present as full as possible a representation of what complete episodes will look like once every single one of you begins writing to us on a weekly basis, as we just know that you will, I reserve the right to make up letters in the absence of real listener email. Feel free to complain. Just do so via email, maybe with an audio clip attached, to theparanoidstrain at gmail.com. While you're at it, throw in a question or an observation or two. See what I did there? Anyway, let's get to today's first email from a completely non-made-up listener that I'm calling Hesitant Benedictine. Dear Fearful Jesuit, I'm so enjoying this, the first episode of your podcast, and look forward to listening to the hundredth. Anywho, you mentioned a bit earlier that there were other turgid metaphors and ideas you were going to employ to try to get at the heart of why conspiracist thinking has and continues to be such a major part of so many people's lives. Would you please offer another? And how can we try to distinguish conspiracy theories from genuine, well-thought-out arguments when we encounter them in our daily lives? Also, you sound like an incredible dad. Well, Benedictine, I'm blushing, handsomely. And to try to address your request, let me offer up this other set of observations called from one of the conspiracy tomes that now threaten to take over my bookcase. Here again, I'm turning back to Professor Daniel Pipes. It's worth noting that his work and opinions on global politics, and especially on modern Islam, the Jewish-Palestinian issue, and the war on terror, are highly controversial, and they're not something that we're in any way endorsing. Still, I can't recommend his 1997 book Conspiracy highly enough. It's an incredible primer for folks who are interested in this topic and in the people who think this way. 
Professor Pipes does a great job of defining conspiracy theorists and of hazarding some thoughts about what makes them tick. For example, he classifies anyone who believes in any single conspiracy theory as a conspiracy theorist, using the rationale that the leaps necessary to embrace one theory will eventually tend to extend to an embrace of a fully paranoid worldview. He also notes that, instead of attracting the ignorant or uneducated, these plots are often the focus of those with a highly logical frame of mind. Quote, If anything, these imaginary plots tend to be more rigorously logical and have fewer loose ends than does real life. Like alchemy and astrology, conspiracism offers an intellectual inquiry that has many facts right, but goes wrong by locating causal relationships where none exist. It is the secret vice of the rational mind. He also lays out some basics that can help us identify and question conspiracy thinking, whether it's others or our own. Starting with common sense. He notes this is one of our most valuable weapons. Conspiracies tend to take simple, clear explanations and add unnecessary, unlikely claims. In the case of the JFK assassination, instead of Lee Oswald, we have a conspiracy involving a cast of thousands. And then we add still more, who are there to rub out any among those initial thousands who can't keep his or her mouth shut. History is also a great protection against conspiracist thinking, if only because studying the past makes it clear how unlikely most conspiracies are to succeed. He quotes Karl Popper, the distinguished philosopher and historian of science, quote, I assert that conspiracies are very rarely successful. The results achieved differ widely, as a rule, from the results aimed at. Pipes notes that conspiracists tend to prefer obscure sources and ideas whenever they're available, and they rely on inconsistencies, or forgeries, as true and accurate. But then they also want to keep their own sources secret and therefore uncheckable, and they tend to believe that evidence that debunks or otherwise opposes their ideas is, ipso facto, evidence for the conspiracy. Basically... You have proof that disagrees with me? Then you're in on the conspiracy yourself. Perhaps the most trenchant of his observations is this. Conspiracy theorists tend not to acknowledge that time is passing. If the Illuminati were once a small, quickly squashed, relatively unimportant, Bavarian conspiracist secret society, they live on forever with their goals, power, and ideas intact and unchanged. He quotes the great and unfortunately recently deceased Italian author and semioticist Umberto Eco, quote, The Rosicrucians were everywhere, aided by the fact that they didn't exist. Finally, he points out that conspiracy theorists tend to agree with the following ideas, even if they don't actually acknowledge that. First, that holding power is the only thing that mankind strives for, and that therefore power-seeking conspiracies are the primary drivers of history. So that means every other motive, charity, patriotism, love, etc., is a distraction, and so are... Major social movements, political alliances, historical grievances, resource struggles, throw them all out. Second, there's the idea that whoever benefits from a given change must be the driving force behind that change. For a recent example, Halliburton benefited from the invasion of Iraq, so they must have been the primary driving force behind the invasion. Ignoring decades of policy papers and arguments for just such a course. Finally, they tend to see life as a staged reality. Seeming gains or losses, losses are in fact gains. Victims cause their own suffering, while perpetrators are innocent. For example, some lunatics blame the Jews for fomenting the Holocaust, as if they did so in order to blame the Nazis and drive public sentiment in their own favor. Uh, these are some of the most obvious examples of this tendency, and of course, these people are titanic assholes. So, with our imaginary reader's curiosity satisfied, let's turn to our final, regularly scheduled section. 
In each episode, I will endeavor to highlight the contributions of a particularly paranoid individual to the proud history of craziness. In this, our inaugural episode, I turn to Robert H. Welch, scourge of the barely existent American communist conspiracy. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. A part of that plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations, of which the United Nations is the outstanding, but far from the only example. Bobby Dubbs, as surely no one ever called him, was an incredibly successful candy executive. He was, according to Wikipedia, the guy who came up with the concept of sticking a stick into warm caramel and cutting it into a sucker, and then sold that concept to Brock's. While my daughter and her orthodontist owe Mr. Welch a debt of gratitude, it's his post-candy career that attracts our scrutiny here. By the late 50s, Welch had retired and put all of his considerable energy into the grand post-war cause of commie fighting. But while the rest of the country just engaged in run-of-the-mill, lightly paranoid red-baiting, Mr. Welch went much, much, much further founding a group that became shorthand for political paranoia over the next 30 years or so, the John Birch Society. We'll be talking about these folks a lot because they're incredibly entertaining on their own, and they're also involved in a whole bunch of interesting stories. But the basic outline is that Welch found some other folks who felt that even Joseph Tailgunner Joe McCarthy wasn't aggressive enough in fighting the communist menace to these United States. He formed the group in 1958, naming it after a man who was killed by the Chinese just after World War II, in Welch's argument, the first casualty of the dawning Cold War. From there, Welch went on to become the embodiment of the most extreme forms of anti-communism and, more generally, opposition to all major international institutions. His greatest hits include being called an extremist by William F. Buckley, publisher of the, for its time, highly conservative National Review, accusing President Dwight D. Eisenhower, moderate Republican and war hero, of being a conscious agent of the communist conspiracy. That's a quote. Eventually moving beyond simple anti-communism to fighting what he saw as a much larger enemy, involving the Bilderbergers, the Rothschilds, the Trilateral Commission, and all of the other greatest hits of conspiracist thinking that we will encounter over and over and over again. In essence, Welch always believed that he and his group stood at the center of a vital moment of history. They were always in crisis, always warning of an immediate, irreversible, unprecedented threat of world historical significance that, left unchecked, would potentially destroy the American way of life. In this way, he was a pretty good avatar for the type of thinking that all of our subjects will embody. It's worth noting that in Hofstadter's essay, he was speaking specifically of Welch when he wrote, The paranoid spokesman sees the fate of conspiracy in apocalyptic terms. He traffics in the birth and death of whole worlds, whole political orders, whole systems of human values. He is always manning the barricades of civilization. He constantly lives at a turning point. Like religious millennialists, he expresses the anxiety of those who are living through the last days, and he is sometimes disposed to set a date for the apocalypse. Quote, Time is running out, said Welch in 1951. Evidence is piling up on many sides and from many sources that October 1952 is a fatal month when Stalin will attack. The Birchers hit a real high point in terms of stature and influence in the 1960s. After all, not every group 
gets its own Bob Dylan song. Well, I was feeling low down in blue. I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. Them communists, they were coming around. They were in the air. They were all over the ground. They wouldn't give me no peace. Well, I run down most hurriedly and joined the John Birch Society. Got me a secret membership card, started walking off down the road. Oh, boy. I'm a real John Bircher now. Look out, you commies. But by the time Welch died in 1985, the Birchers were kind of an out-of-date punchline. Shorthand for kookiness, but not much of a going concern. However, their continuing impact can still be felt, even today. Benignly, through the much broader acceptance of their ethos of limited government in modern political discussions, and less benignly, but much more importantly, of course, through the sheer vitality and reach of their paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at The Paranoid Strain. Email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes as it helps other people find the show. Special thanks to our interviewee, the intrepid Lane Green, a.k.a. LG Sweet. We're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, Downtown Abbey is our web designer, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode is a deep dive into the mother of all conspiracy documents. Until then, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. At least, not you specifically. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.